Thanks for checking out the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Hamilton City staff will revisit the city's 12-hour street parking rule. Another convoy, this time with motorcycles, is heading to Canada's capital. Liberty for Youth's latest fundraising marathon has kicked off. A former Jeopardy contestant reacts to Canadian Matea Roach's impressive run. Maple Leaf star Austin Matthews hits the big 6-0. And we speak with one of the keepers of the Stanley Cup. The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. You know, a lot of people are working 12-hour shifts now. Uh, we are, we are as a council, encouraging multimodal, um, encouraging people to leave their cars at home. They're not maybe as inclined to do so if they think they're going to come home to a ticket. Welcome back to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Rick Samprin with you. That is the voice of Hamilton Councillor Jason Farr as the planning committee voting 4-2 in favour of a review of the city's 12-hour street parking limit. What gives? Well, it follows an appeal from a resident who said driveways are scarce in the lower city and more people are working from home because of COVID. So they need a place to park their vehicle if they do so, if they have a vehicle to uh, to park. Uh, some use public transit. Obviously, others are biking around the city or going to and from wherever they need to go. But a lot of people still have cars and are parking them on city streets. John Paul Danko is the councillor for Ward 8 in the beautiful city of Hamilton and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, JP. How are you? Good morning, Rick. I'm good. I'm going to uh, I'm going to start with a bit of honesty on my part. I had no idea that Hamilton had a 12-hour street parking bylaw. Yeah, I don't think it's something that most people know about unless you got a ticket for it. Um, it's it's uh, it's only enforced if there's a complaint. So if somebody on your street doesn't like that you're parking in front of their house and they happen to complain about you, uh, then bylaw might show up and you might get a ticket. So. It's uh, it's been enforced for years, uh, a long time, but it's only enforced on a complaint basis. So, will this review of the street parking limit um, look at possible uh, proactive enforcement? No, this is just uh, would remove the twelve-hour limit. So, it, 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 instead of um, it being complaint based, it would just basically give you permission to be able to park on the street. All right. What kind of issues does this um, possibly bring about in certain neighborhoods? So this is a good example of where there's a difference between um, what what goes on in, in the lower city and downtown and kind of more of the suburbs. Because in a lot of the areas of the city, there's, there's no uh, parking available except for street parking. So um, people have no choice but to park on the road, whereas up on some of the suburbs, you know, you have your driveway and it's, it's more of a choice to park on the, on the road. And it is an interesting, we have seen during COVID um, that people are working from home, they're spending a lot more time at home, they're not driving as often, and they're running into this, this, this problem where they're not moving their cars every 12 hours, so they're, you know, somebody complains, they get a ticket. Um, whereas in the suburbs, uh, you know, there's a lot more choice. So that's that's all that council has asked for through Councillor Farr's motion is to look for a review of uh, of the parking bylaw. Uh, we're chatting with John Paul Danko, Ward 8 Councillor in the City of Hamilton. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Could this be a case of, listen, everyone in the downtown doesn't have to adhere to this parking limit anywhere else. Uh, we're still going to have this in effect. Could that could that work? Well, our... our Bylaws apply to the whole city. So that's one of the challenges that we wouldn't have a bylaw that only applies to one specific geographic area. 
Um, so we, we need to find out something that works uh, across the entire city for everybody. What do you expect city staff to come back with and what would you like to see? Well, I think we, we can definitely acknowledge the, uh, the fact that people are working from home more often and they, you know, the need to use your car is, is kind of diminished a lot because of uh, our recovery from COVID and coming out of that. But at the same time, you know, people could be really protective about that parking spot out in front of their house. Um, and there are very good reasons why we have a 12-hour parking limit. So, for example, some of the areas around Mohawk College with uh, a lot of uh, tenants and students, there's tons of cars all over the place. And, and it can be a real challenge if people aren't, you know, you know just, just parking forever in one spot. So um, I, I expect staff will consider, you know, the, if anything's changed since the last time this was reviewed, and then come back with some uh, recommendations that might work for everybody. If the 12-hour street parking limit is completely eliminated, how much ticket revenue do you think is going to evaporate? Is it, we're talking about a lot of money, a little bit of money? It's not a lot. It's, like I said, it's only something that's enforced if there's a complaint. Um, so it's, it's not a large revenue stream as far as I'm aware. Speaking of roads, uh, do you have any uh, updated information on Hamilton's problem intersections? I know uh, city and uh, uh, police are investigating uh, different ways that could possibly help uh, with the recent rash of uh, collisions involving pedestrians. Any update on that front? Yeah, that's been really troubling, and it's something that uh, we've tasked our public work staff to look at those specific intersections. Uh, we know where the, the most dangerous intersections in the city are. A number of them are along Main Street and King Street and also Upper James up on the mountain. Um, so the public work staff are looking into pedestrian safety improvements. And then I have a motion coming at the, uh, the next public works committee to, uh, to direct staff to also work directly with Hamilton Police Services to strategically look at some enforcement and uh, public works approaches to, to improve safety. Is there a deadline for some sort of concrete plan? There's no deadline because we want to make sure that we do the, uh, the investigation work that needs to be done and that we coordinate with police and make sure that everybody has, has time to put something in place that, that is the most appropriate uh, solution possible. All right, well, hopefully that is sooner rather than later. John Paul Danko, Absolutely. thanks for the time today. My pleasure. Have a good one. That is Councillor uh, John Paul Danko, Ward 8, City of Hamilton, as uh, he and a bunch of the others around the council table and uh, city staff investigating uh, the 12-hour street parking limit. Kind of makes sense from a you know post-COVID perspective or, or a during-COVID perspective of eliminating the 12-hour parking limit. Um, but yeah, there are, as uh, Councillor Danko mentioned, there are some areas, certainly around Mohawk College, uh, around McMaster University, you know, hey, I, I'm, I'm not going to pay for parking on campus. I'll just park on this side street for hours on end. That certainly can be an issue. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. We will not allow for unsafe or unlawful conditions that could lead to another unlawful protest as seen in February. Welcome back to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Ottawa Interim Police Chief Steve Bell as saying that the capital is bracing for another convoy protest. This time, however, a bunch of motorcycles going to the capital. Yeah, the organizer of Rolling Thunder Ottawa and a bunch of others making their way to Ottawa. And um, the organizer saying that there's going to be a free-for-all and safety issues if police block access to the route that they want to take. 
Is this a case of here we go again? Stephanie Carvin is an associate professor of international relations at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University, former national security analyst for CSIS, and author of the new book, Stand on Guard, Reassessing Threats to Canada's National Security. Stephanie, welcome back to the show. How are you today? Uh, You know, um, I'm not going to lie. It's snowing in Ottawa, and... um, I'm having problems with that. Like we can talk about the convoy, but we could also do an emergency session, like like discussion about the snow. <laughs> it's deja vu all over again. I know. <laughs> it's like, oh my goodness. Yeah, it's not supposed to last, but I think I think winter just had one one last message to send us this morning, and and here we are. I would imagine that residents of Ottawa are somewhat on edge after what happened back in February. From a security and police perspective, the odds of that happening again seem remote, right? Um, well, at least the police seem to understand the scale of what they were, are, are maybe dealing with. Uh, we do know that the the this this is called Operation Rolling Thunder. Um, be that as it may, uh, that those organizers have been in contact with the police. So hopefully police have some kind of information about the event, who's going to come. They are proactively preventing people from parking downtown, which is a good thing. Um, but, you know. These guys are, you know, if we learned anything from, you know, the last time around, these guys are not great at maybe following instructions or the law uh, or they believe they are the law and um, we're or they believe the police are actually secretly on their side. So they they tend not to listen. And this is a major challenge when you're dealing with a movement of this sort, one that's uh, particularly rooted in conspiracy theories um, that, you know, challenge the idea of, of the legitimacy of the government. Has there been any talk of making the area that was involved in the original occupation of Ottawa back in February a pedestrian-only area? And would that bring about a different security uh, detail? And does that just move the problem somewhere else? Well, that's that's talking to my friend this morning uh, who lives uh, not downtown, but but adjacent to downtown. She's like, well, great. They're just going to park in my neighborhood if they can't park downtown. And that's probably what may happen, uh, depending on numbers. So yeah, I mean, there is this um, concern, I think that, you know, if, if they if they don't have their way, will they try to challenge uh, police authority? And if not, will they try to park elsewhere? Right now, I can tell you that Wellington Street, so the street that Parliament Hill sits on, uh, they're thinking of pedestrianizing it, you can't drive on that street anymore at all, uh, which is actually, I think is a good idea. I think they should pedestrianize it anyways, because people should be able to just enjoy that space um, when they come and visit Ottawa, which which they should just maybe not in a convoy. Uh, but it's it's yeah, so there's a number of challenges here that uh, but, but the other challenge here is is that you know, you, you said this when we first started talking that, uh, you know, Ottawa people are nervous. Uh, they, they what we what Ottawa went through was really horrible. And uh, there's a lack of faith in police. So this is this is going to be a real test for city authorities, city police, in terms of how they handle this. Now, that being said, and I appreciate I, I'm going on a slight tangent here. Um, I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm still not sure how this is going to play out. I think that you know, when we saw the January 6th event, we've seen multiple attempts to organize uh, subsequent events like January 6th in the United States. This seems to be the first major attempt to get a convoy going. There have been protests in the market. I've, I've seen them myself, like people walking around with, um, you know, offensive flags and things like that. But uh, in this particular case, uh, I, I don't know if we're going to see something of the scale that we saw in, in February, because 
uh, quite frankly, um, you know, when you look at the messages on social media around this convoy or around this uh, Operation Rolling Thunder, a lot of people think that, you know, it's a trap. And they may be too scared uh, to show up. So that's that's going to be interesting, too. So, you know, I think they're expecting somewhere between 500 and 1,000 bikes. Let's see if that actually happens at Manifest or if people are just a little too nervous about kind of being caught up in a police operation again. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Stephanie Carvin, Associate Professor of International Relations at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University, former National Security Analyst for CSIS and the author of the new book, Stand on Guard, Reassessing threats to Canada's national security. We're talking about the rolling motorcycle cade, if you will, rolling Thunder Ottawa. It's been uh, tabbed as uh, another convoy sets to uh, hit the national capital area this weekend. How much pressure is police under to perform? Because the last time they did not get it right. Yeah, I, I don't think that can be understated. I think the community really felt betrayed um, in what they saw happening that, you know, they saw, you know, I, I, like the police just weren't doing their jobs they don't they never seem to really understood what was at stake which is you know and honestly i mean that whole thing surprised me because you know um you know i'm a former analyst but at the time i think i was working in my parents basement and i could see the planning going on i mean and you know they call it the freedom convoy but the original name for that convoy was called operation bear hug because they were planning on literally you know shutting the city down until they got what they wanted and the people leading that protest i mean people say oh they're angry truckers um and in this case they're trying to uh, frame their um their their uh, theme i guess they're trying to frame their grievances around being angry about the way the veterans memorial was was treated which you know that's a whole other thing um but you know, I, I think that um, at the heart of this, you, you it's organized by a bunch of um, conspiracy theorists. Not everyone who is there is a conspiracy theorist or a Nazi. I get a lot of pushback on that. And, and that's I'm not saying that at all. But the, the core organizers of this, uh, of, of the of. Uh, the February protests and the protests coming in, these are conspiracy theorists. These are people who um, have, have, you know, shared the same views as, uh, you know, the self-proclaimed Queen of Canada, Romana Dedulo. Uh, they are people who um, have used kind of anti-government rhetoric. Uh, one of the speakers is, is has definitely um, engaged in Holocaust denial. So, you know, I mean, the, th- that's who's organizing this. And so I think at the very least, the police should have a better understanding of who they're dealing with this time. But if they get it wrong, I mean, the repercussions, I think, here just among the citizenry, uh, it, it's going to be pretty severe. And, and, and let's be clear, we're talking about a town of very boring bureaucrats. Um, <laughs> and for them to get on the streets and protest, it really takes something. I hear you. Stephanie, always appreciate your time today. Thanks for joining us. And uh, hopefully uh, you stay safe this weekend. Yeah, oh, that's the plan, just hiding in my basement for good times. <laughs> Thanks, Stephanie. Bye. Stephanie Carvin, Associate Professor of International Relations at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University, a former National Security Analyst for CISA, and pick up her new book today, Stand on Guard, Reassessing Threats to Canada's National Security. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Right now we're going to focus on a unique fundraiser, and I say unique because well, it, this is this is a lot different, and it's a lot different for a good reason because it really raises money for a great cause. Uh, it's Liberty for Youth, and it is a well, for lack of a better term, a daily marathon between Hamilton 
and Ottawa. And at the center of attention is the executive director for Liberty of Youth, who has done this in previous years and is back at it again, Frederick Dryden, who joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Frederick. How are you? Hey, good morning. How are you doing? I'm good. So this 10-day marathon between Hamilton and Ottawa kicks off uh, later this morning, correct? Uh, yes. Well, today we have our media scrum at uh, Mohawk College at 11, and I'm very, very excited to get things going. Now, uh, I know you mentioned Ottawa to Hamilton. I think everyone is so used to me running from Ottawa to Hamilton, but this one is a 10-day run around 15 local cities Okay, so what, which cities are you running around then? Yeah, so I run around Burlington, uh, Hamilton, Bimbrook, Caledonia, Six Nation, Brantford, uh, Brand County, Waterdown, Dundas, just in a full circle embracing the youth that uh, we, we run programs with and, uh, and just offering hope uh, for, the, for the post-pandemic, right? So why the change? Why run around this city? I mean, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, the key thing that um, we really want to embrace the youth that are in our core program, and we realize that many youth are, are, are affected by education inequality, employment inequality, and mental health inequality. So this is a way we can embrace these youth in our core service area and raise resources to launch three strategies that focus on addressing inequalities in education, employment, and mental health. So what are those strategies? Uh, so, well, you know, um, Rick, good question. We see that, uh, uh, you know, in Canada, um, you know, Ontarians have the most closures. And we see that various school board research show that 60, 66% of kids are fearful that they're going to be left behind, you know, academically because of the pandemic. So we're going to be launching a summer school program, eight-week summer school program that will work with specifically grade nine kids uh, to prepare them so they can catch up for grade 10. Um, so that's for education strategy. Uh, you also mentioned mental health. How does this run uh, impact what you guys do from a mental health perspective? Well, from a mental health perspective, you know, we've done a lot of awareness program traditionally, but we realize the, you know, this global pandemic has also exposed the mental health pandemic that we're living with. So we're going to be partnering with the Canadian Mental Health Association to train and certify staff so the staff can work more readily with you. They're on the two-year, average two-year waiting list for mental health services. Also, we're going to also um, train and certify and, uh, some of our volunteers and, and some of the parents so they can be more aware to uh, some of the challenges their children are going through. And I'm not sure if you're aware about it, but throughout the pandemic, we uh, expanded, actually. And we're now in Brent County, where we have a 25-acre ranch. And we're going to launch uh, several new mental health programs that focus on nutrition and um, sports and also to animal therapy because we have horses, alpacas, llamas at the ranch, and the youth love that. Wow, that's pretty cool. Frederick Ryden is our guest. Frederick is the executive director of Liberty for Youth, and he's undertaking a 10-day marathon uh, that, uh, well, used to go from uh, Hamilton to Ottawa and vice versa, but uh, this year around this city. Is it is it still 10 days and it's still 21 kilometers a day? Is that the goal? Yeah, the goal is still 10 days, uh, and then I'll be in 21 kilometers and speaking 21 times i'll be hoping multiple round tables the goal is just to create hope speaking to youth wherever there are detention centers schools uh where there are i just want to run and reach him and you know create hope for them you know also it is a fundraiser so our goal is to raise three hundred thousand dollars to launch you know our, 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 our pandemic strategy as we talked about and every donation received allows to help another youth how can people donate 
people can log on to libertyforyouth.org and they can just simply donate right there on the website, uh, you know. Yeah, that's that's easy in today's day and age. You go online, click on uh, donate here, and away you go. Now, as for the run, this isn't the first time you're doing this. Has it gotten harder or has it gotten easier over the years? Well, Rick, to be honest, you know, I'm 50 years now, and uh, it gets tougher. But I think, you know, Rick, um, you know, any great cause or visionary, there's an element of sacrifice, which is, you know, that's, that is the uh, interdependent to the goal and the success. And, you know, it's been two years since youth have experienced many closures and lockdown. And that's too long. We need to recover. It's time to recover. So I'm willing to sacrifice my body, my body and get out there and run and just create hope for young people. How do you prepare for these series of marathons? Because you're basically doing a marathon every day. Yeah, marathon running, speaking, you're right. But you know what? Uh, good training. And I'm so privileged to have some great sponsors, you know, the Runner's Den that I've been trained. Uh, Gordon Esther Paul have trained me. I've got some amazing team behind me. And also, to, uh, you know, I've got uh, <laughs> every night I've got my Epsom salts, my bath and lots of stretching. And <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but I've been privileged to uh, Cedar Spring Chiropractic Clinic. They've been taking care of me, uh, provide great free services. And, and Enoch Cole is an amazing physiotherapist. So I've got some good, good people in my corner keeping me healthy and strong. That is excellent. So 10 days from now, you'll cross the finish line, so to speak. Uh, hopefully, we'll get to that $300,000 fundraising goal, which would be awesome. Again, you can donate at libertyforyouth.org. You mentioned the ranch with the animals. When does that open? Yeah, so that has been open, Rick. So what oh. happened? Uh, sadly, uh, in May May 2020, we lost our first uh, youth to a pandemic suicide. And at that time, we decided we had to do something. So we uh, remortgaged our youth center, took the equity out, and we acquired a 25-acre ranch. So that from then, we ran all day program all throughout the pandemic. When high schools, when there was no graduation, we actually held graduation at the ranch. So when there are lockdowns, kids were able to come out with their parents and be on the ranch and be with animals. So it's been an amazing just to see how the youth love to come out and get the therapy. Uh, so I will be ending May the 7th with a cer- celebration ceremony money at the ranch. And Rick, I would love for you to be here and see me with all the youth as all of us run into the ranch and cut the ribbon ceremony. I would love for you to be with us. That is going to be amazing. Frederick, looking forward to that. Good luck on your runs. And uh, yeah, we'll touch base uh, down the road. All right. All right. Hamilton, it's time to recover. Let's go. Create hope for youth. You got it. Frederick Ryden, Executive Director, Liberty for Youth. You can donate now, libertyforyouth.org. Cheer on Frederick as he uh, embarks on his 10-day series of marathons uh, around this city. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Was Matea Roach an NBA fan? Was she correct? Let's see. What is the United Kingdom? We know that's not correct, so you're going to drop down, hopefully not too much. Ooh, 7,000. Still... Today you earned $16,200, and here's the nice total, a 16-day total, $368,981. Congratulations. Welcome back to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Matea Roach making Canada proud once again last night on Jeopardy. 16 consecutive wins. The bank account is growing and growing and growing. How She's making it look very easy, but we know if you've ever taken the Jeopardy quiz... 
It is extremely hard. I've, I've tried it years ago. I tried it, and I failed miserably. Someone who didn't and appeared on the show is now appearing on this show. His name is Peter Diakowski. He's a former Hamilton Tiger Cats legend who appeared on Jeopardy back in 2014, and he also earned the title of Canada's Smartest Person in 2012. Peter, welcome to the show. How are you? Oh, I'm doing great, and you know, 2012 was a long time ago. <laughs> You're still a smart guy. Let's talk about your Jeopardy experience. 2014 was a long time ago as well. What was it like taking the test, getting on the show, and finding out that you have qualified? Oh, it was, it was exciting. I had uh, a few people encourage me to try out, and every year Jeopardy has an open call for people to try. So if anyone on here is li- listening is a, is a trivia buff, you should go try it out. There's an online test. So you have to register for a time. They do it once a year. They have a couple of days. When I did it, it was in January, if they're still doing it that way. So you do an online test. And then if you score well enough, they invite you to a live audition that you've got to drive yourself to. Fortunately, they had some in Toronto that year. So I went up. It was right after practice. So, uh, you know, I used to play football, believe it or not. And uh, once our... Uh, our tie cats were done practice for the day. I jumped in the shower, got onto the uh, the the 403, drove up the QEW to Toronto, and it was at a, a downtown hotel conference center. I was the last person in the door. I made it in with about 30 seconds to spare before they were going to lock the doors and not let me in at all to write the test. They do a written test to make sure you weren't cheating online, I suppose. <laughs> and then you play a mock game. And so how did that go? Well, they, they, they bring up groups of three of, of these applicants, and they have a projector up. They have a pretend Jeopardy stage, and you have the actual clicker in your hand. And they have you go through about three columns, three or four columns uh, against each other. And it's the same format, same rules as the game. And I, and I think they do it to see if you can actually play because maybe they've had some experiences before where they have people uh, do well on the test but they they can't perform in in the game and so I started out it was the first subject we got into is a tough one for me I'm not a complete Jeopardy player as I, I, I later found out but then I was able to get one and take it over to a column I liked and I, I ran that one and another and uh, they you know they sent us back to our chairs but I guess I made a good impression and uh, I didn't hear anything at all back from them for ages. But you eventually did receive the call, and you get on the show and are under the bright lights. I know it didn't go especially well for you, but what was the experience like being on stage, meeting Alec Trebek, playing the game that you're watching on TV? Oh, it was amazing. It was an experience of a lifetime. It almost didn't happen a couple of times. The notification that I'd been selected came into my junk mail folder, and I, I checked it about the day before it would have been automatically deleted. They booked me in for a taping in December shortly after the season. And that was the year we lost the Grey Cup in Saskatchewan. I tore my patellar tendon and blew my knee out just before halftime. And I was fresh out of I, – I couldn't go anywhere. So I had to cancel. And then they reached out in February with about two weeks' notice saying that they had – I guess somebody else blew his knee out and they had a spot for me again. <laughs> So I, I flew down there, down to sunny Southern California, Sony Pictures Studios in Hollywood, and I got to you know meet uh, a, a hero of mine, Alex Trebek, and the 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 whole experience was 
what was surreal and you know for, for the first time uh seeing you, you know so, uh, that set that i'd watched a million times on tv in person what, uh, that's what really brought, brought it home oh this is for real mm-hmm. and so reflecting on the experience now obviously you didn't you didn't win but you did participate and that is you know saying something in of itself because it's extremely hard as you mentioned to get on the show are you still a regular jeopardy watcher and have you been following what Matea roach has been able to do well I love Jeopardy. I am a Jeopardy fan and a Jeopardy watcher. I have been so utterly consumed for the last few weeks in our bargaining with with the league. So I'm still on the board of the CFL Players Association and I'm on our bargaining committee. And we're currently working with the CFL on a new collective agreement uh, with the current one expiring um, uh, on the eve of training camp. So May 15th is looming large on everyone's calendar so i haven't watched a single matea roach (laughs) episode but i know everything about it because she has been all over the news i mean i walking by a tv in the hotel lobby yesterday and she was all over cp24 i mean she's a star yeah absolutely really quick because we got to go how are negotiations going oh they are um they're going we've made um some uh Significant uh, progress in, in some areas, but um, you know we we have some very significant ground to cover in, in some really important ones. So um, you know we're, we're we're very hopeful. I, I think on both sides of the table we have uh, people who love the who love the league, but you know, the reality is there are are some very significant gaps in uh, the working conditions for CFL players that we've got to address. And, uh, you know, looking at the potential for the future, there's an opportunity to get a good deal done. I hope so. Good luck with that, Peter. It was great catching up with you and enjoy the rest of your day. Oh, thank you very much. You too. Thank you. Peter Dykowski, former Hamilton Tiger Cats player who appeared on Jeopardy in 2014 and also earned the title of Canada's smartest person in 2012. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Checked in by Matthews. Here it is. Scores! There's a new member of the 60-goal club. Austin Matthews is the first leap ever to go zero to sixty in a single season. The uh, reception from you know the team, my teammates, uh, you know the crowd here at home, it was uh, just really special. You know, just uh, a moment I'll remember for a really long time, and just uh, like I said, just sends chills down through your bones. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Lots of excitement in Leafland last night as superstar Austin Matthews scored two goals to hit the big 6-0, the first ever Leaf to score 60 in a season. Big thanks to Sportsnet for the sound. What a campaign it has been for Matthews and the Maple Leafs. Stephen Ellis is the web editor at the Hockey News and was at the game last night to watch the affair. Uh, Wow, what an atmosphere at Scotiabank Arena last night. That was unbelievable because obviously when you look back and there's been a lot of time where, like last year, if if he did something like that, there would have been no fans to see that. So it was so cool to see that crowd go that crazy. And people know how special it is. Only two players in Austin Matthews' lifetime and my lifetime um, has been able to hit 60 goals. It's so rare, and he was able to do it. He's the 21st NHL player to hit the big 6-0, the first in 10 years to do it. Others on the list include Wayne Gretzky, Mario Lemieux, Brett Hall, the recently deceased Guy Lafleur, and Mike Bossy. Talk about the elite of the elite. Yeah, like when you look back at the NHL goal scoring, it was a lot different. When you look at Wayne Gretzky, being able to score 90, 80 goals. That's just something we just don't see anymore. So scoring 60 goals now in a season like this, 
And then having doing that when you miss eight games, that's pretty impressive. So uh, the fact that only Ovechkin and Stamkos have been able to do it among active players, and he's only 24, like he could do this again. He could have done this last year. He might be talking about a guy who could do this multiple times in his career. That's really cool. Matthews is becoming the first player to score 50 in a 50-game span since uh, Lemieux did it back in 95-96. And you mentioned it. What makes Matthews 60 goals this year even more special is that he did it in only 73 games. Yeah, and just imagine what he could have done if he played every single game this year. And uh, he'll he'll be the first to tell you it only matters what you do in the playoffs. But you could see that he cracked a smile yesterday. He was happy. He appreciated how the crowd reacted to that. It was also the first time I've ever seen hats thrown on the ice for a second goal of a game, too. (laughs) Stephen Ellis is a web editor with the Hockey News, joining us here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, capping uh, an exciting night in Toronto. And for all Leafs fans, last night is Austin Matthews. It's 60 goals for the first time in his career, the first Leaf ever to do that. I know that Washington's Alex Ovechkin uh, hit 50 goals again this season. That seems almost automatic with Ovi. And he's hunting down Gretzky's all-time goals record. But is what Matthews doing a a sort of passing of the torch or maybe more accurate? he's trying to wrestle the torch out of Ovi's hand? It definitely feels that way. And it almost feels like Ovechkin gets 50 goals. It's like, ah, oh, whatever, he can always do that. And if Ovechkin is able to, to pass that record, it would be pretty incredible considering he had to deal with COVID, a couple shortened seasons, um, and, and he still could potentially do it. But for Matthews, at the rate he's going, again, he's, he's only 24 years old. Like, how many more years can he do this? If he's, uh, he's not in this prime yet. He's going to get better. This is a guy that... Like, last year could have potentially hit 70. Maybe he could do 70. Maybe he'd be the first player to do that in the cap era. That'd be unbelievable. So uh, it, this is something where we're, we're seeing greatness. Matthews hit 60 last night. Edmonton's Connor McDavid collected another four points last night in a big 5-1 win over Sidney Crosby and the Pittsburgh Penguins. He has 122 points, seven more than Florida's Jonathan Uberdo. Um, throw in you know some other great players and great performances like Johnny Goudreau and Calgary and a bunch of others. How hard is the Hart Trophy voting going to be this year? It's about as hard as it's been in recent years. Because, yeah, you look at how good Matthews has been, and he's got the points. Look at Drake Stiles and good, Goudreau, all those players, Huberto. But then you look at a guy getting 60 goals, and that's pretty rare. So it's, I guess for the voters, it's truly what you value more, a lot of goals or a lot of points. And uh, that's why I hate the, the Hart Trophy. It's the hardest trophy to vote for. Who would you lean towards more? I it, I love the points factor, but I have to go. I think in this case for goals, just because of how important that is. And and again, Matthews did it without playing the complete season. So for me, that'd be my pick. Yeah, I think I'm leaning that way too. As great as McDavid has been this year, and pretty much every other year in the National Hockey League, what Matthews is doing this year, especially you know getting 60 in 73 games, that is just unbelievable. Uh, you mentioned the playoffs, and yeah, I, I would assume that a lot more attention is now going to be paid to number 34 in blue and white. Not that it hasn't in past years. But does that put more pressure on other guys like the Mitch Marners and other players on the Maple Leafs, Captain John Tavares, Willie Nylander, and, you know, uh, uh, everyone else outside the Big Four? Does the pressure build for everyone else on the team to step up and finally win a round? Absolutely. When you look at it, they've been, uh, teams have been able to shut down Matthews in a big way in the last couple of playoffs, and Matthews kind of has this reputation of not being this big playoff performer. And at some points when you have five guys covering you at every shift, it is tough. But uh, I think this is something where... The way Matthews is playing, he'll be able to have probably the best playoff performance of his career. But yeah, it does put more pressure on guys like Severus and Marner. And when you look at last year, the, the, the true story of that was the Leafs outplayed the Montreal Canadiens. They were the better team. They just ran into the goalie playing in the, the playoffs of his life. And they did miss Severus that entire time. So if this team is healthy and they get bunting back, 
this is a group that's going to be pretty tough to stop. And saying that, they're probably going to play Tampa Bay in round one, and I'm not sure if there's a hotter team than the Lightning out there because they've just they've not only been winning games, they've been destroying teams, including the Leafs, eight to one last week. The Tampa Bay Lightning were my pick to win the Stanley Cup before the season, and I'm sticking with that, even though they they weren't necessarily the best team all year long. But when, when you got a team where you, your goalie Andre Vasilevsky is one of the best goalies in the world, and he's having kind of a down year, and it's still one of the best. Uh, performances of the season, that's a tough team to beat. So, Stamkos hitting 100 points, Kucherov, we know how good he is, Braden Point, guys like that, that's not a team I would want to play in the playoffs. So what you're saying is Leafs fans are ready for another spring of disappointment. It's, it's, it's <laughs> the best they've been prepared for it, but I still think I like Tampa Bay a bit more. Yeah, I think I'm with you on that one. Steven, always appreciate the time. Thanks for joining us today. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Yeah, I'm a diehard Leafs fan, and the, the last team I want to play is the Tampa Bay Lightning. My gosh, they are on a roll. Uh, yeah, it could be it could be four and out, it could be seven and out, uh, but it's more likely maybe over and out for the Maple Leafs in a couple of weeks' time. Let's hope, I don't know, uh, that, that something strange happens, and the two-time defending champions somehow, some way, become beatable, and uh, Toronto gets it done. There are 16 NHL teams that now have a 60-goal scorer in their franchise history. The Leafs obviously joining that list last night. The others are the Canadians, the Oilers, the Flames, the Canucks, the Jets. Yes, every Canadian team except for Ottawa has a 60-goal scorer. The Sabres, Bruins, Red Wings, Flyers, Penguins, Islanders, Capitals, Blues, Kings, and Lightning. Also with a player in their franchise history with 60. Kind of cool. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. The Stanley Cup playoffs begin next week as 16 NHL teams battle to have their names engraved on hockey's holy grail. But the Cup doesn't just sit around in the Hockey Hall of Fame in downtown Toronto all year long, waiting for the next championship team to come along. And it's a well-traveled trophy that has really uh, made its way around the globe. And one of those people who uh, accompany the Cup on its travels here, there, and everywhere, is Mike Boltz. He's one of the keepers of the Stanley Cup at the Hockey Hall of Fame and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Mike, how are you? Good morning, Dan. How are we doing? I'm good. Uh, this is uh, the most exciting time of the hockey season um, with the playoffs uh, you know, starting next week. Can you feel the anticipation building? Yeah, it's my favorite time of the year. Um, I think the first round is my most exciting time of the year. I mean, I'm a big sports fan, but I think the first round of the, the NHL playoffs is some of the most exciting uh, events and, and sports to watch. Uh, and then the whole round, I mean, 16 uh, wins to get to the Stanley Cup, to hoist it over your head, uh, four rounds. I mean, it's a battle, and uh, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I think it's the hardest trophy to win in all sports. It's really a gauntlet to go through the regular season and this uh, four-round tournament. And, uh, you know, epic battles have been uh, waged here, there, and everywhere throughout the years, and it's really been fun to watch. Um, what has also been fun to watch is the awarding of the Cup and the teams that receive it and just the, you know, the, the sense of accomplishments, the, the relief in some cases. There's a lot of fun that goes uh, with seeing players celebrate with the Cup. Uh, you get to hand it out. Um, what's that like, and, and how did you get this job in the first place? Well, I've been working for the Hockey Hall of Fame since 1995 and did a variety of different things for the Hall of Fame. And then uh, Phil Pritchard, uh, our curator and uh, main cup keeper, uh, came and asked me if I'd be interested in traveling with the Stanley Cup, and it was a pretty much a no-brainer to say yes, and that was 22 years ago, and uh, it literally has taken me around the world, and as I tell people, I only hang with winners. <laughs> uh, do you recall your first time with the Cup 22 years ago? 
my very first trip would have, well, actually I did a trip. I remember telling Phil, I did a trip in 98 down to CBC and, uh, it was just, you know, down, down the street from the hall of fame and then nothing ever happened again. So I thought he didn't do a very good job. <laughs> I still forgot about that. But 2000 was my first year. And, uh, I guess it really would have been the, the Stanley cup final, uh, Dallas, uh, New Jersey was my, uh, first time on the road with the cup. And my very first player that I brought the cup to, uh, was Randy McKay of the Devils up in uh, the Upper Peninsula of Michigan? Wow, that's pretty in, cool. In Michigan. On uh, on Monday, you're at the White House. Yeah, we, Monday was uh, yeah, it was a great day up there at the White House. We were on the uh, well, we had the cup all over the White House, and uh, that was my fourth president. I've had the pleasure of meeting, and uh, my 14th time in the White House, and it never gets old. And uh, we did a big thing for social media and digital, uh, bringing the Stanley Cup around different spots of the White House, some of the unique areas. And then we had the big ceremony with the Tampa Bay Lightning on the White House front lawn. And then uh, President Biden invited us into the Oval Office to have a, you know, get away from the cameras and just have a nice little conversation and tell some stories. And it, it was a lot of fun. That's pretty cool. Mike Bolt is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Mike is one of the keepers of the Stanley Cup at the Hockey Hall of Fame. What's the best part of the job as keeper of the Cup? Uh, the eyes that you get, the things you get to see and the places you get to go. I mean... You get to sit, kind of be the fly on the wall, so to speak, and see what the players get to do. I mean, they usually start off having uh, family photos, maybe breakfast out of the cup or the bowl of cereal in the in the Stanley Cup, to taking it to the local rink where they had all started and taking pictures with kids at minor hockey, and and then into a big party, of course, and then some of the other events, just taking it on top of mountains, and uh, you know, sometimes you're taking it to uh, a concert and you're meeting some of the biggest rock bands in the world, the Stanley Cup, uh, you know. That's a neat part of it. And then, yeah, the travel, just going to places I never thought I'd get to go to, to be, you know, in northern Sweden to, uh, you know, I've been to the Ukraine, I've been to Russia, I've been to, you know, another place that was really unique as we brought the cup over to Afghanistan for the troops. That was an amazing thing. And just to be around the cup and see the doors that it opens. And probably the biggest door it ever opened for us was uh, in 2004, we got to bring the Stanley Cup on the space shuttle. And I thought it was really cool, but I didn't realize until after the tour that, that the, the guy that brought us around, just for you know the magnitude of this, 99% of NASA employees don't even get near the shuttle, and you guys were on it. And I'm like, wow. So that really kind of impressed me. And, <laughs> uh, again, it's really just the doors that the cup opens is probably the best part of the job. That's the cool part of the job. What's the hardest part of being the keeper of the cup? So that was the hours. Uh, you can go 18, 20 hours a day sometimes, but uh, it's a small price to pay for what these guys do to win it. Um, and then the, the travel, uh, you know, uh, I've been on airplanes for the last five days. It's nice to be in New York now and, uh, not be on a plane for the next few days, but, uh, air, air travel can be tough with uh, delays and trying to make sure the cup gets on the plane safely and all that good stuff. Has it ever been misplaced within those travels? Yeah. Like, I mean, we travel prior to the, like, you know, the pandemic, we were on the road about 320 days a year. So, uh, there's no such thing as a perfect world. And yes, so the odd times things go wrong, but it gets fixed fairly quickly. <laughs> Any idea of where you think the Cup is going to wind up at the end of these playoffs? Yeah, the team that gets the 16 wins first. That's easy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look, I, I, I don't predict it or anything like that, but, uh, I, I, yeah, I mean, it's great about our game. It's hard to predict. Uh, I mean, you can sit there and look at some of the teams that are doing really well and that are at the top of their, their game, but uh, this game is full of upsets too, and uh, that's why everybody's got to tune in and watch because we just don't know what's going to happen. Not like other sports, sometimes you kind of know what's going to happen. Yeah, that's uh, one of the big allures of the Stanley Cup playoffs. Mike, really appreciate your time today. Good luck with the Cup going forward, and uh, we'll certainly see you down the road. 
All right. Thanks, guys. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.